if I may tell on myself, when Pastor invited me to speak this weekend, I immediately started studying the deep truths of the Bible because I wanted to drop some nugget on you folks that you'd leave here going, wow, that guy knows the Bible. I'm a flawed human. I apologize. But on uh, Thursday, September 30th, I was home studying, and, <clears throat> and my son texted me and said, By the way, Dad, your grandson is being dedicated this Saturday in Kansas City. So I jumped on the phone, and I called my wife, and I said, Babe, i I got to go. I, I can't miss this event. So with the help of my wife and our awesome staff, I got in the car that Thursday afternoon and headed that way, and I was able to make it to Kansas City that Saturday night for this blessed event right here. That, my friends, is Brother Hudson getting dedicated to the Lord. Is that awesome? <laughs> Amen. So I drove over 22 hours for a five-minute service that that little guy will never remember. But I have proof on my phone, so I'm going to get some grandpa points one of these days and be like, I was there, buddy. But after the dedication service, Pastor Groeschel, my, my son works at Life Church in Kansas City. Pastor Groeschel preached a powerful message that just really spoke to my heart. And as, as we left the service that night, we were going to the restaurant to have dinner to celebrate this awesome event. And the Lord spoke to my heart a couple of things. First of, all, first of all, he kind of worked on me for being prideful and thinking about exalting myself over the word and the Lord. And I confess to him as I do to all of you. Again, apologize, human. But then the Lord also took some of the truths that Pastor Gochelle had shared and really dropped some lessons into my heart that I feel it is so important for us to look at tonight. Really... It's not that these truths aren't deep, but I want us to look at some of the true basics of what it even means to be a Christian and following the example of the Lord who set the model for us to follow. The title of my message tonight is The Price of Being Right. So can we all confess that we love to be right? I love to be right. My wife and I play this little game that when one of us is right, that we're like, okay, say the words. You were, you were right. I, I will confess that I have to say that a little more often than she does <clears throat> because she's more often right than I am. I'm just finishing the thought there for you. But we love to be right. In our defense, there are reasons for that. Brett Hansen in his book entitled, The Truth About Us, The Very Good News About How Very Bad We Are, wrote this, The Feeling of Being Right. Studies show we actually get a dopamine hit when we think we're proven right. We can literally become addicted to the sensation of rightness. Your body does not discriminate against pleasure, writes clinical psychologist Rene Carr. It can become addicted to any activity or substance that consistently produces dopamine. This might explain why we spend time scrolling through and enjoy information and news links that prove once again how right we are. 
Wow, do we love that feeling. It also explains why many of many go to their graves insisting they were right, even if it made them miserable in the process. Addictions work that way. We all love being right. In fact, our bodies literally crave this desire to be right. But when you look at Jesus as our example, we learn some powerful lessons that I think we need to stop and face. And I <clears throat> encourage you to turn in your Bibles, or if you have your smartphone, we'll be looking at several scripture. The passages will be up on the screen if you're a note taker. But I want to start here in John chapter 13. These powerful words, and we'll develop them a little bit more later. But Jesus says this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I was captivated by what Jesus was concerned about as the most right of us all. You see, Jesus was the embodiment of being right. One of his descriptions is righteousness. And in our right-obsessed culture, I think it's important for us to step back and look at what was important to the author of being right. I want to know what Jesus thought was right, not just me, amen? So there are five lessons I want us to learn tonight directly from Scripture, directly from the Lord, of what he thought was important. The first lesson is this, truth versus condemnation. John chapter 8 tells this story, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And when they kept on questioning, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. No stones. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, we don't know what Jesus wrote. But some church historians believe that Jesus began to write the names of the accusers and some of their sins. And that's an interesting thought because in verse 9 it says, At this, when Jesus started to write, at this, those who heard began to go away. <laughs> the older ones first until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. You see, in the face of that which is wrong, and let's be clear, there was wrong in this moment. But in the face of that which was wrong, Jesus showed us the difference between truth and and condemnation. Jesus was not afraid of the truth. He didn't deny the truth. He didn't belittle the truth. He confronted the truth. In fact, in his last statement, he clearly said to the woman, go and stop sinning. Stop living that way. Go and sin no more. 
He didn't shy away from the truth, but at the same time, he was not interested in condemning the woman for her sin. Romans chapter 8 verses 1 and 2 explain it powerfully. Paul says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Is there any free people in this room tonight? There is therefore now no condemnation. Jesus was not interested in just seeing the sin in this woman, he, he confronted the sin, he spoke to the sin, but he was not interested in condemning the person. Here's what condemnation means. To pronounce to be utterly wrong, to, in, to utter a sentence of disapprobation or disapproval against... To censure, to blame. But the word often expresses more than censure or blame and seems to include the idea of utter rejection. When faced with that which was wrong, Jesus didn't say, you're a sinner. He said, neither do I condemn you. He said, you may have sinned, but I don't reject you. That's an awesome lesson for us to learn, amen? When faced with wrong, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. So what was the price of being right in this moment in John chapter 8? Well, it was a moment to condemn this woman for her sin and then try to trap Jesus in some sort of theological debate. We're talking about condemnation. The feeling, the, the sense, the words of utter rejection. <clears throat> I, I've told you folks about my dad many times. If you've heard me speak, my dad was my hero. Love my dad. I've, he's been gone now for about 20 years. I'm sure he's got several important jobs in heaven. <laughs> my dad was a hard worker. Miss him every day. I so wish I could have picked up the phone Saturday and called him and had him pray over me and talk about this message. But my dad, <clears throat> the godly man that he was, was raised by an abusive alcoholic. And my dad told, told me a story that when he was a little boy, a little guy, probably 10 or 12, he was helping his dad and his brothers move a house. And so they had jacked up the house, and dad's job was to stay at one of the jacks and hold the jack in place while they continued to do their work. But my dad was a little guy, smaller than me. As a little boy, he was one of the smallest of the brothers. So as he stood there holding that jack, and I'm sure he was being a little boy and goofing off and not paying attention, he let the jack slip. And in that moment, that jack came up and hit him in the jaw and broke his jaw. And do you know what his father's response in that moment was? Well, first of all, he beat my dad for letting the jack slip. And then for the thousandth time, he yelled at my dad and told him what a failure he was and that he would never amount to anything. 
And may I tell you that as godly as my dad was, those words were always there. And he fought that battle of condemnation because those words, even though my dad was washed by the blood of the lamb and a born-again believer and lived his life as right as you can live it, those words were still there. Condemnation. And you may have similar stories. You may have worse. And you may battle in this war of condemnation. It's like that song said, I don't feel like I'm enough. But tonight, I want you to hear the words of the Lord from his word. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Folks, tonight, I started to say I don't care. I, I definitely care, and I care deeply. But it doesn't matter what was spoken over you, because those were not the words of the Lord. If you were verbally abused by someone in your life and told that you were not good enough and would never matter enough and would never be enough or good enough, may I say to you that that was a lie? And that the Lord tonight says to you, that's not my words, because he says to this woman who was caught in sin, he says, I don't reject you. I don't cast you out. Stop your sinning, but I don't condemn you. So tonight, may the word of the Lord speak to your heart, and may you know that you're good enough, and that through the Lord, through the Lord, we all are strong enough, amen? It's not my ability, it's not my strength, and when it, when it is, when I try, that's when I mess it up. But when I lean into the Lord, he's able to say to me, you're going to make it. And if I might be so bold, may God help us to never be the condemner. If there are people in our life or around us who are struggling with sin, may, may we never be the one who condemns. Because it's a temptation sometimes of church people. I've been in church since before I was born. I, I attended church the first time nine months before I was born. Been in church ever since. And sometimes church people can be hurtful people because you know why? We're human. And we say and do the wrong things. So sometimes there may be a temptation in our life to be like, oh man, I can't be around that. That person's got sin in their life. May we be careful in those moments that we don't become the condemner. Because even Jesus himself said, I don't condemn you. I don't reject you. Pastor Randy has this awesome saying that's easier said than done. But that is that we hate the sin, but we love the sinner. Amen? That's our job. And that's the first lesson we learned from Jesus tonight is truth versus condemnation. Jesus was not afraid of the truth, but he also was not interested in condemnation. 
The second lesson is humility versus pride. This story is found in Luke 18. The word says to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus tells the story, this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like the rest of these Yahoos. That's my version. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. He's a crook, you know. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, who, who were some of the most hated individuals in that world, he stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth. This man, this sinner man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Hear these thoughts from this blog post um, by Giant Worldwide. It's a leadership post. So this, this whole um, article is about leadership, but the principles are so true. It starts with a quote from Pastor Rick Warren, who says, True humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Many people confuse pride with confidence, arrogance with assertiveness, and unwillingness to compromise with decisiveness. But here's the real fact of leadership, borne out by countless studies and research on the effect of prideful versus humble leadership. Humility versus pride. Humility is a virtue. Pride is not. Humility comes when people are secure. Pride comes when they are insecure. A humble leader is a confident leader, knowing who they are and what they can do. A prideful leader is an overconfident leader trying to convince other people that they're good enough to be doing what they're doing. Humility is strength. Pride is weakness. The most humble people never have to prove themselves or hide something. The most prideful people you'll meet are always proving themselves and hiding something. <laughs> Humility is attractive, draws people to you. Pride is obnoxious, it pushes people away. A humble person understands himself or herself realistically knowing what they can do well, what they cannot do well. Humble people are not afraid to take constructive criticism or counsel, nor do they feel the need to take credit when it is due elsewhere. A prideful person, however, hasn't taken the time to truly know themselves. The pride in them makes them want to be someone else and blame others when weakness appears. Humble people are responsive to their people, themselves, and others, acting, asking what they can do to improve and respecting others by default. Proud people are resistant and view everyone else as the problem. Humble people understand their dependence on friends and family and colleagues, and they lean into their support for the good of the whole. Proud people put themselves first and always pursue their own agenda, even at the expense of others. And I will confess, because of my insecurity as a teenager, there were times when I projected that aura of pridefulness, arrogance, 
But it always came from a place of insecurity. I wasn't really overconfident. I was not confident enough. And so I projected this falsehood. And fortunately, as I grew, I had this awesome model from my dad who was a hardworking, loving, successful man. And yet he was always humble. Never rude or arrogant or brash or hurtful. And so as the years passed, I tried so hard to model myself after my dad and after the scripture. But if I am truly honest, I'm pretty sure I would have been a pretty good Pharisee. There's two reasons. One, I like rules. I like knowing what to do and when to do it and how to do it. I like rules. And this is a gift I didn't ask for, but it's a gift I got. I tend to do things the hard way. I don't put stuff together once. I put it together three times. Character flaw. <clears throat> so the Mosaic law that Moses presented contained within it 613 rules to be followed. But the Pharisees, the ones that I'm afraid I would have been pretty good at, the Pharisees thought that's not enough rules. So they took the 613 laws, commandments, rules, and they added to them. So there's the Mosaic law from Moses, and then the Pharisees added the Mishnah law to that. For example, the Mosaic law, one of the commandments is to keep the Sabbath holy, which means that Jews were not supposed to work on Saturdays. Pretty simple, right? Don't work on Saturday. But to clarify this, the Jewish scholars created 39 separate categories of what work means my kind of people <laughs> and within those 39 categories there were sub categories so to follow the rule of not working on the sabbath there are literally thousands of sub rules to follow including how many steps you can take and how many letters you can write on the sabbath rules but what does Jesus say? You see, I think I would have unfortunately been a pretty good Pharisee because I like rules and I like to be able to measure things against the rules. But Jesus was never as interested in the rule followers as he was in our heart. Jesus was not impressed with the Pharisee who said, I am so awesome, and I follow the rules. He said, the sinner is the one who goes home justified before God. Why? Because his heart was humble. Humility versus pride. So what is the price of being right? Mark chapter 8 says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world 
that forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? James writes, but he gives us more grace, and this is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud. Boy, that's deep. Do you want to have opposition from God Almighty? If you do, live a prideful life. God opposes, this is right from Scripture, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Humble yourselves before the Lord, verse 10 says, and he will lift you up. You see, the beautiful thing about serving God is we don't have to be the ones that lift ourselves up. As we humble ourselves before the Lord, it says right in Scripture, we aren't the ones in charge of marketing. We don't have to be the ones trying to tell everybody how awesome we are. We bow before the Lord and we say, God, I'm a sinner. Help me. Humility versus pride. Are we more interested in the rules than we are in our heart being right before the Lord? The third lesson from Jesus is in Luke chapter 7. And that lesson is forgiveness versus sin. Luke 7 says there's a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. Again, Jesus is confronted with sinfulness. And that woman in that town learned that Jesus was eating at this Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair and then she kissed them and she poured perfume on them. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him, what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Verse 44, then he turned toward the woman and spoke to Simon. And he, said, and he says, do you see this woman? I came into your house and you didn't give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with your tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. You see, verse 37 and 39 tells us that she was living this lifestyle. But once again, what is the author of truth and right interested in? When faced with this woman whose life in, is in sin, what is his reaction? First of all, he thanked her. To Simon, he thanked her for her kindness. He acknowledged her sin. Again, don't misunderstand. Jesus is never afraid of the truth. He acknowledged her sin and then he forgave her sin. So what do we do when we're confronted with sin? 
We can't offer actual forgiveness from sin, but we can certainly offer the Son of God to those who are struggling with sin. In that moment, we have a choice. We can follow the lead of our Savior who, when confronted with sin, did not condemn. He, he, he blessed those who were humble and bowed their heart. And thirdly, he forgave. Aren't you glad tonight that the Lord forgave you? I'm so grateful he forgave me. And when confronted with our sin, even now, you may be doing your best to be a Christian, but there's times when we mess up. And as we come to the Lord in that moment, he chooses to forgive. A couple was married for 15 years and they were starting to have some squabbles. So they went to some counseling and they came up with an idea. And the idea was that they had a box and they were both going to write little things little on slips of paper. Things that irritated them, leaving the jar out and the towels out and not putting things away. So at the end of the month, the wife pulled out her slips and they talked about the things that bothered her. Then the husband pulled out his slips, but on every one of the slips were simply the words, I love you. Now, as I told that story yesterday, we all kind of giggled because I'm not sure that would work, fellas. Because he basically got away with not having to do anything but say, I love you, I love you, I love you, done. But here's the point of that story. I don't know if that would have helped or not in this illustration. But I do know this, and I want you to hear this. That in your life and in mine, <clears throat> that every moment of our life, every day of our life, as Jesus writes on that slip to put it in the box of our heart, I can guarantee you on every one of those slips of paper are the words, I love you. Jesus means it, and he loves us tonight. He loves you. The fourth lesson from Jesus is found in John chapter 4, and that lesson is revelation versus rebuke. This one's powerful, I think. John chapter 4, verse 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for the drink? Because Jews didn't even associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So she's stuck in the literal and she's like, how can you give me are you better than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself? And Jesus answered, verse 13, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. She still doesn't really get it. She says, but sir, give me this water so that I don't so I won't get thirsty and I won't have to come to this well. So once again, Jesus turns the conversation and he says, go call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. Jesus said, 
You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man that you're with now is not your husband. So what you just said is true. Again, Jesus was not afraid of the truth. He confronted this sinful life, but then what did he do? And over in Luke 19, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. He was wealthy. He was short. I enjoyed that. One of the few characters in Scripture described as short. He couldn't see over the crowd, so he climbed a fig tree. Jesus was coming that way, and when Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And all the people saw this and began to mother. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. So what did Jesus offer in the face of these imperfect souls? To the woman at the well, the woman said in verse 25, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he will explain everything to us. And this is the first declaration from Jesus himself about who he was. And he says in verse 26, Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And to Zacchaeus in Luke 19 verse 8, But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody, so Zacchaeus is clearly admitting that he... He had cheated people. I will pay them back four times. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to your house because this man is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So when Jesus was faced with these disreputable souls living in sin, instead of offering them rebuke or condemnation, he offered them Revelation. And if you read the rest of John chapter 4, the lady, the Samaritan woman, went back to her home and told everyone what Jesus had done. They came back with her, and they had church for two days, and it said many of them were saved. And in verse 42, it says, We no longer believe just because of what he said to you, but we have heard him for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Because in that moment when Jesus was faced with their sinfulness, he did not offer them rebuke, he offered them revelation. Hallelujah. He revealed the truth to the Samaritan woman. For the first time he said, yeah, I am the Messiah. To Zacchaeus he said, you know what Zacchaeus, you're the very kind of person I came to seek and to save. I have had the good fortune in my life to have many different kind of experiences. <clears throat> I was raised in rural Oklahoma, a little bitty town called Vertigris. Anybody heard of Vertigris? On old Highway 66, just northeast of Tulsa, a little bitty spot in the road. And yet somehow, about eighth or ninth grade, I fell in love with jazz. Rural Oklahoma, you know, cowboys, country music, all that, didn't stick. <laughs> I was listening to Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk and Maynard Ferguson and all of these people. My mom and dad weren't just real sure if that was 
Christian or not, they weren't sure about what jazz was. So all through high school, I practiced and played. It was good enough because of the friends around me that I was recruited to several colleges, but I felt the call of the Lord. So instead of going to college, <clears throat> I went to seminary and uh, did my ministry training. And then for the next 12 to 15, 15 years, I was in full-time ministry. I was a pastor, a youth pastor, church planner. And then as I've told many of you, my life fell apart um, in 1999. So I moved back home. <clears throat> and my brother, whose life had also fallen apart, had moved back home. And he was uh, running a construction company. So I went to work with my brother. And one of my first jobs was one of the favorite jobs I've ever had in my whole life. And that was the finish clean of a house. So I was responsible for the rough clean, which was as the house was being built and all the trash that accumulates, I would come in and haul it off. But the finish clean was at the very end. The house is done. It's about to be closed and moved into, but it's a mess. There's sheetrock mud in the windows. There's dirt in the carpet. There's dust on the cabinets. The garage is messy. The, the deck has stuff on it. Everything is dirty. The house is done. But it's not quite livable. And I don't have that ability to see things. All the stuff around here that we've built and the Lord, <clears throat> we sing that song, Waymaker. The Lord was putting me in training my whole life for this very job. I just didn't know it because what have I been able to use since I've been here? My music. What have I been able to do since I've been here? Use my ministry training. What have I been able to do since I've been here? Use my construction training. God's a way maker. He knew what he was doing even if I didn't. But I don't have that ability to see in designing things. <clears throat> Everything we do around here, Pastor Darla designs it. And then I'm good at the paperwork and the grunt and getting it done I'm not great with a hammer but I'm pretty good with administrative stuff <clears throat> but with the finish clean I could see it I could drive up to that dirty house and I could see it it usually took me two or three days depending on if I had help my dad was retired and usually came to help me because there was nothing worse than cleaning the windows and you Missed a spot, so you walked all the way around to the other side of the window, and you think you got the spot. Then you walk back in, and you realize that you still missed the spot. If I had help, it usually took me a couple of days. But when I left, that house was shiny and new. I had touched every surface that I could possibly. I wiped the walls. I, I polished the cabinets. I vacuumed the carpet. I power washed the garage and the driveway and the front porch and the back deck. When I left, that house was as clean as it was ever going to get. And that's what Eli spoke about last week. You see, that's how God sees us. Because we see the sheetrock mud and the mess and the stuff because we know who we are, but the Lord has the ability to see us for who we're going to be, not just who we are. And that's what Jesus did in that moment. He didn't just see Zacchaeus for the tax collector that he was. He said, Zacchaeus, listen, 
First of all, I want to come to your house. I want to have a meal with you. But then at the end of that, Zacchaeus confesses his sin to the Lord. And the Lord said, Zacchaeus, you're the very kind of guy that I came for. To the woman at the well, he reveals who he was. He was the Messiah. And I feel compelled to say to you this day that the creator of the universe who was in this room and in our hearts, when confronted with our sin, our failure, our disappointment, instead of offering rebuke, instead of spanking us for letting the jack handle slip, instead of condemning us, our Lord wants to offer us revelation. He wants to reveal his truth, his humility, his forgiveness to us. And all we've got to do is open our hearts to receive. Hallelujah. Rebuke versus revelation. And the final lesson from Jesus tonight is back in our main text. <clears throat> And the lesson is this, love versus hate. So let me let the, set the scene for you. There in uh, John 13, Jesus is nearing the end of his journey. He wants to have one final meal with his crew. They had the, final, the last supper. At that supper, Jesus washed their feet. Judas is off to do his deed. Jesus breaks Peter's heart by telling him what's about to happen, about the betrayal and then Jesus says these most important words. I don't know that we understand or believe or say these words enough. I know I don't. Because I'm so often more interested in the rules than in the heart. But listen to what Jesus said again. Jesus said a new command. Now that's important to those guys because they know about the 613, right? They know about the Mosaic law. And now Jesus said, I've got a new command. But there's only one, and here it is. I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must love one another. And by this, what's the this? Is it the ability to follow rules? I mean, what would be our scorecard? Pastor Randy's told the story that if he was God, he would have a, a big zapper gun, and we'd be like, nope, pew, take that one out. What would be our scorecard? The Lord said, here's his scorecard. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. In fact, that phrase, love one another, or a slight variation of it, is found 19 times in the New Testament. We're going to take a couple minutes and I'm going to list them out for you. And there'll be a test later. I'm just kidding. John 13, 34 and 35, we already did, one and two. Romans 12, 10, be devoted to one another in love. Romans 13, 8, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Galatians 5, 13, serve one another humbly in love. Ephesians 4.2, bearing one another with love. 1 Thessalonians 4.9, for you ourselves have been taught by God to love each other. 
Second Thessalonians 1, 3, and the love of all who have for one another is increasing. Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider how we may spur one another toward love and good deeds. First Peter 1, 22, love one another deeply from the heart. 1 Peter 3.8, love one another, be compassionate and humble. 1 Peter 5.14, greet one another with a kiss of love. 1 John 3.11, for this is the message you heard from the beginning. You should love one another. 1 John 3.23, and this is his command to believe in the Son of God and to love one another. Dear friends, let us love one another. 1 John 4.7. 1 John 4, 11, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 1 John 4, 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. 2 John 1, 5, I ask that we love one another. So hopefully that illustrates the point that as believers, as people who call themselves Christians, Christians, that we should be known by our love. So the price of being right for Jesus and us as his followers, that price should be truth, not condemnation, humility, not pride, forgiveness in the face of sin, revelation, not rebuke, and most importantly, if we're going to call ourselves Christians, Jesus made this clear in John 13, we should be known by our love and not hate. Now, not to put too fine a point on it, but let's put this into action. Think of the person in your life you dislike the most. An ex, a politician, who is it that you dislike the most? Maybe it's one of those talking heads on TV and you almost throw the remote when you see them and realize in that moment that it is that very person that God loves. Sometimes it may be difficult to like one another, but that's not what God said. He said to love one another. You see, I'm a numbers guy. I love spreadsheets, grinding away in my office, payroll, finance, all that administrative stuff. Where are my numbers people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Love you people. And in each of the services, there was a very small group of numbers people. But the rest of you, thank the Lord for us numbers people, because we do the stuff that most of you would think, are you nuts? Because the stuff that I love, most people don't love. But I'm a numbers guy. Jesus was a numbers guy too, except his numbers always involved people. He was about finding the one, even if he had to leave the 99 to find the one. Jesus had 70 apostles, 12 disciples, three close friends, one best friend. Jesus was applauded by the thousands on Palm Sunday, but crucified between two thieves a few days later. But then he tells us that it was all boiled down in John 3.16 to one. For, for the Father gave his one and only Son so that anyone who believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Today, folks, we 
are the one. It's the whole purpose of what we did tonight was for the one. Jesus came and died for the one. We did church tonight, turned on the lights, kicked on the air, had awesome worship, preached all for the one. So tonight, I understand that you may have been hurt. I have a dear friend who had to sit by as a young lady and watch her home church mistreat her own mom. She still found her way to a relationship with the Lord, but that left a mark. And you may have had a church or church people hurt you. You may have had a father or a mother. So many people came to me yesterday to tell me their stories. But I want you to know tonight that Jesus came and died for you, for the one. And so tonight I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me and to close your eyes. I don't want to miss this opportunity. I know it's a Monday night, but I still feel it's so important in this moment to ask and to make sure if you're here tonight and your relationship with the Lord is broken, maybe you haven't been serving the Lord the way you know you should, maybe you've never given your heart to the Lord and you've been reminded tonight or you've maybe heard for the first time tonight that God loves you and he came to seek and to save you, not some other mythical person, you. And so I want to ask tonight, if you're here tonight and you want to invite the Lord into your life and you want to restore that relationship with the Lord or maybe start a new relationship with the Lord like you've never had before, I'm going to invite you to lift your hand and the ushers will put a Bible in your hand. Just going to wait a moment. I know it's a Monday night. Many of you folks are awesome Christians but I don't want to miss this opportunity thank you would you stand with me tonight I'm going to ask you to stand with me but to keep your heads bowed and your eyes closed because I felt compelled yesterday and I was just blown away by the response and I'm asking you to close your eyes because this is kind of a private moment I don't want to embarrass anyone but if you're here tonight And you've had those negative, condemning words spoken over you. And many of us may have, but some of you may have dealt with it, maybe recovered. But there are some in this room, I know there were many yesterday, that you still struggle with those words. I know my dad did his entire life. You still hear those words, and you just once again need to come to the Lord and bring those hurtful words painful words to the Lord and ask him to help you if you're here tonight and you've had those hurtful words spoken over you and you want to be bold enough to lift your hands so I can pray with you would you lift your hands yeah all across this place dear Lord Father in the name of Jesus so many of my friends this weekend I didn't even know, but I think this was the main reason you had me write this message was for this moment, was for those who've had 
those hurtful words spoken over them. And those aren't the kind of words you can unhear. But I know it's not your words, Lord. So I pray for my friends all across this place who had a mother or a father tell them hurtful things. May they hear the word of the Lord again tonight that, that we are his children. Pastor Amber prayed it over us tonight. We are God's children. And we accept that tonight, Lord. We live in that tonight, Lord. May that fill our heart tonight. Father, I pray for healing for those who have been hurt. It may have been church people that were hurtful. It may have been a church or a preacher. It may have been a mom or a dad. But Lord, I pray for healing in our hearts. May we not hear those hurtful words, but may we hear the healing words, the revelation words of the scripture tonight that I don't condemn you. Jesus, may we feel your spirit, your healing power in our hearts. Thank you, Lord. I'm going to invite our prayer team, if they would come. <clears throat> and if you're here tonight and you need to do business with the Lord, we want to invite you to come. And we would love to pray with you. Maybe you didn't raise your hand, but you know you need to do some work. The hour is not super late, so if you would like to spend some time in prayer, I know Jesse will continue to play and would be glad to uh, open these altars to you folks. We love you, and I hope you understand that the Lord loves you and that he did all that he did for you. So, Father, in Jesus' name, we come before you tonight, and we just want to pause one more moment before we all go back to the hustle and bustle of our life. And we want to say thank you. Thank you, God, for saving us. Because I'm believing that with, with my friends here tonight, that everyone in this room is doing their best to serve you. So, Lord, we want to first of all thank you for saving our souls. And then, Lord, we want to thank you for healing our hearts. For those that have been wounded and hurt, God, heal our hearts, and we thank you for that. We claim that healing tonight. Now, Lord, go with us. Go with us, Lord. May all of us remember the lesson from tonight that we just need to pause, take a moment to thank our Lord, to worship, to breathe. Lord, in your presence, we're so grateful. So grateful, Lord. Lord, I know I mess up. I fail in so many ways. Lord, I know I'm not great with people, and sometimes I look right past people. So I'm a numbers guy. And Lord, there's so many other ways. We could be here for hours if I wanted to list my failures. But I know we all struggle and strain because we're humans, but Lord... May we all hear in our hearts tonight that that's not what you see. You don't see the dirty house. You see the clean, beautiful house. Thank you, Lord, tonight. Thank you, Lord, tonight for cleansing my heart and making it new. 
Uh, Lord, go with all of these, my dear friends. May your spirit and power be in their lives. We pray all of this in your name. Again, we don't want to hurry you off. If you would like to spend some time in prayer, please do. We love you folks so much. Thank you for being here. Have a great week in the Lord. Amen.